Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good Monday morning, everyone. Poppy is off today. I'm Erica Hill alongside Rahel Solomon. Nice to be with you this morning. morning. Uh, Let's get started with five things to know for this Memorial Day, May 29th, 2023. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy made a debt ceiling deal. Now, though, they have to sell it. So can they get the votes before a potential default on June 5th? And Russia bombards the Ukrainian capital from above. Ukraine has shot down a record number of missiles ahead of its long-awaited counteroffensive. Search and rescue operations underway right now after an apartment collapse in Iowa. Seven people have already been pulled out. The mayor, though, says a number of others are still missing. And happening today, President Biden will honor America's fallen service members during a Memorial Day address from Arlington National Cemetery. He will also participate in a wreath-laying ceremony at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And tonight, the Boston Celtics looking to make some more NBA playoff history by becoming the first team to win a Game 7 after being down 3-0 to the Miami Heat. CNN This Morning starts right now. The House is set to vote on that debt limit deal just two days from now. And the race is on to convince lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to back the plan. The agreement prevents the worst possible crisis, a default for the first time in our nation's history, an economic recession, retirement accounts devastated, millions of jobs lost. Mr. President, what do you say to members of your own party who say you've made too many concessions in this deal? They'll find I didn't. Well, as for the debt ceiling, the latest warning from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen estimates the government could run out of money to pay all of its debts on time on June 5th. That is just one week from today. So this is a pretty big day in Washington. Our chief congressional correspondent is on Capitol Hill. Arlette Sines is at the White House. Arlette, let's begin with you this morning. So the agreement finally happened. What more do we know about how this played out behind the scenes? Well, good morning, Erica. After weeks of phone calls and meetings and many stops and starts, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy finalized that deal to raise the debt ceiling. Now, the president has defended his decision to negotiate with Republicans and in the end said that this agreement is a compromise with neither side getting all that they wanted. But now the difficult task is ahead with as they need to get enough support to pass this legislation before that June 5th deadline. With the nation barreling towards a default, President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy brokered an 11th hour deal to raise the nation's debt limit. We've reached a bipartisan budget agreement that we're ready to move to the full Congress. And I think it's a really important step forward, excuse me. And it takes uh, the threat of catastrophic default off the table. The 99-page bill, the results of weeks of tense negotiations. The agreement would raise the debt ceiling until 2025, after the presidential election, and would cap non-defense spending for fiscal year 2024 after certain adjustments. 
A White House official says that includes shifting $20 billion in IRS funding to other non-defense areas and rescinding $30 billion in unspent COVID relief funds. We know at any time when you sit and negotiate within two parties that you got to work with both sides of the aisle. So it's not 100% what everybody wants, but when you look, the country is going to be stronger. This is going to be transformational where Congress is literally going to vote to spend less money this year than we spent last year. A major sticking point in the negotiations, tightening work requirements for government assistance. This deal raises the work requirements age for those receiving food stamps from 49 up through the age of 54, but makes exceptions for veterans, people experiencing homelessness and former foster youth. White House officials say they expect the number of people subjected to food stamp work requirements will remain about the same. With the details ironed out, Biden and McCarthy now need to sell the deal to their respective parties. But the far liberal and conservative wings in Congress are already balking. The House Progressive Caucus frustrated with those expanded work requirements. Absolutely terrible policy. Does not reduce spending. Actually, by some estimates, creates a burden on administrative spending that is actually worse for, you know, for the overall cost of a program like that. The conservative House Freedom Caucus is also pushing back, saying the deal does not cut spending enough, with key members tweeting no Republican capitulation and hold the line. Those votes were never really in play. We get that, but uh, overwhelmingly, Republicans in this conference are going to support the deal. How could they not? It is a fantastic deal. Now, the goal for President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the coming days is really to target those middle ground lawmakers on both the Republican and the Democratic side. White House officials will continue briefing lawmakers throughout the day today and continue to work the phones as well. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is hoping they can have a vote Wednesday evening. But even if it clears the House, it still needs to make its way through the Senate, where any one senator could stall proceedings. So this is really a consequential week as that uh, deadline uh, for raising the debt ceiling looms just one week from today. Yes, yeah, certainly not across the finish line just yet. Arlette, thank you. Now, even before the text was released, some skeptical lawmakers were raising issues with the debt deal. CNN chief congressional correspondent Manu Raju live for us now on Capitol Hill. So Manu, uh, Arlette touched on it a bit there, but just how much skepticism are you seeing on both sides? Uh, there is quite a bit of skepticism and frustration about this. The, essentially, lawmakers are left with a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. Take it, a deal that a lot of them just simply would not like, could not vote for a lot of the policies that are in, in here, leave it, and the country could experience the first-ever debt default, which could have catastrophic consequences, not just in the U.S., but around the world, which is leaving these lawmakers in an incredibly difficult position here in the 11th hour. Now, we are hearing loudest concerns from the members of the far right of the House Republican Conference. They're particularly concerned because they view this as a significant retreat from the House GOP position back in April when they passed a bigger bill with lots of spending cuts, other policies to rein in key Biden administration policies. A lot of those were simply were never going to make it into a deal with the White House, but they believe that they gave, Kevin McCarthy gave too much on the issue of allowing the debt limit to be suspended until 2025. They had actually had hoped that they would be suspended until 
March of 2024, so they could fight on this issue again in the election year and, and extract more concessions from the White House. But as part of the negotiations, McCarthy agreed to go further. Now, on the left, you're hearing a lot of pushback about not just those work requirements that, uh, in, that for food stamps that are expanded in this proposal, but on also on other issues as well, the spending cuts that are part of this, restarting student loan payments are also part of this negotiation. They didn't want any concessions. They had said they had sided with the White House's position that they would not negotiate whatsoever. There'd be no conditions, only a clean debt ceiling increase. Ultimately, the White House had to reverse course and essentially telling the members in private conference calls last night, you're going to have to accept this deal because it could have been a lot worse and a default could be a lot worse, which is leaving lawmakers in a position, take it or leave it. And Manu, clearly this could be a bumpy ride the rest of this week until this ultimately passes at some point. But is there any chance that this doesn't pass? There is, at the moment, the odds are that it will pass, simply because there is no other option at the moment. Now, prospects did brighten yesterday for the chances of this deal passing, in large part because a number of more center-left Democrats in the House Democratic Caucus indicated that they were likely to support this. There are a couple of major blocks within the caucus that uh, probably represent roughly 100 members or so that are signaling that they will support this bill. That would be significant because it would offset the losses from the Republicans, which we expect dozens of Republicans to vote no, which means that they can probably get the votes through but barely. But the vote counting is happening behind the scenes. It's been happening since this deal was cut on Saturday. Tomorrow, members will get back into town. The whipping operation will go into full effect when they get back into town tomorrow. And then it will pass. Go If it passes, it goes to the U.S. Senate, where we expect the final passage could be Friday or over the weekend. One senator could hold it up. But the expectation at the moment is that with with the support of Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell and the expected support of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, this will likely get more than 60 votes, which is the key number to advance this bill to final passage. So after these uh, these fraught negotiations, tense negotiations for weeks, perhaps they can barely avert default. But you're right. It's going to be a bumpy ride from here until final passage. A lot more to watch here. Manu Raju, thank you. Life force still in the Capitol. Rescue teams searching for possible missing residents in Davenport, Iowa, this hour after part of a historic apartment building collapsed in the downtown area on Sunday. Look at that, the aftermath. At least seven people were rescued, several others injured, as authorities warn of the building's instability. CNN's Adrian Broaddus is with us now. So officials, um, Adrian, as I understand it, haven't ruled out at this point possible deaths. Do we have a firm number on how many people remain unaccounted for? We still don't know how many people, Erica, are missing. We do know, as you mentioned, at least seven have been rescued and crews continued their search overnight. Meanwhile, we did hear from some residents who were in the area. Here's what they had to say. Some of our concerns at this time is still the structural stability of the building and trying to locate unaccounted for individuals. Crews have just started to enter the building again to do a secondary search and also start with the rescue of the debris pile that we have at the bottom of the building. We will continue to do that until this operation is completed. And that was the chief there. We heard from multiple city officials. So again, they're still looking. This is a process that could take some time, Erica. Yeah, also the building owners, as I understand it, were under city orders to make upgrades. What more do we know about that and and what may not have been done? 
Well, we do know the owners of the building did have permits in place for repairs to the exterior walls. Something else that was also telling, we learned during that news conference, that tenants of the building had made, quote, numerous complaints to city officials. We heard that the city inspector did come out several times. So still, it's unclear what led to this partial building collapse. But we do know there were permits pulled so there could be some upgrades to that building in downtown Davenport, Iowa, Erica. Adrian Broaddus, appreciate the update. Thank you. Uh, new overnight, CNN teams on the ground in Ukraine heard of some six loud explosions in central Kyiv. We'll tell you what we're learning at this hour. Sam Kiley uh, on the front lines in eastern Ukraine for us. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ramping up his attacks on Donald Trump as he gears up to hit the campaign trail. We'll be right back. CNN teams on the ground in Ukraine hearing multiple loud explosions in Kyiv overnight. We're also learning that Ukraine's military says its forces shot down nearly 70 air targets launched against Kyiv in what's being called Russia's largest drone attack yet on the capital city. Kyiv's governor says one person was killed. Falling debris sparked fires across the city. For more on what is happening there, CNN Sam Kiley joins us. He's live in eastern Ukraine. Um, so attacks picking up there. What's the latest at this hour? Well, so this is part of a pattern we've seen in a shift of the efforts of the Russian air attacks against Ukraine to focusing on Kyiv. The volume nationwide is a little bit lower than we'd seen when they went after the energy sector, but that was nationwide. Now the overwhelming concentration of attacks has been against the capital lately, overnight last night, with a large number of the Shahed, the primitive Shahed drones from uh, Iran, but also cruise missiles, which are uh, potentially much more dangerous, de delivering a much heavier warhead. In both cases, the vast majority of them being taken down by Kiev's air defenses. But these are not infinite air defenses. And of course, uh, there is an anticipation that Ukraine may launch a counteroffensive against Russia and the, the Russians would want Ukraine's air defenses to be much depleted before that starts so that they could try to use their aircraft uh, to counter that offensive. So uh, this is all part of the maneuvering by both sides, both in the sky and on the ground. I mean, here in Kramatorsk, this is a town very near to the front line indeed that gets regularly hit. You can hear the, the rumble of artillery fire and rocket attacks, airstrikes uh, all day and all night. But uh, the Russians are clearly intent on trying to make the uh, command and control structures in Kiev feel uh, and indeed be uh, very vulnerable with these very concentrated attacks that they've been prosecuting now for nearly a month. This is about the 15th or 16th day or night uh, this uh, month that the uh, Russians have focused on Kyiv. We're also hearing, interestingly, from Belarusian President Lukashenko, who's now offering nuclear weapons uh, to any nations who want to join, who want to support Russia, Belarus. Um, it's not clear to me that he actually has any nuclear weapons to offer here, Sam. No, he doesn't. Um, but what he does have and, and has done is allow or offer uh, the, the opportunity for Russia to put uh, what they're calling tactical nuclear weapons. In other words, short range, relatively low load uh, nuclear weapons there as part of the ongoing effort to kind of waive the threat of nuclear a catastrophe at not just Ukraine, but the international community. But this is consistent with Lukashenko's uh, courting, shall we call it, mm -hmm. of the Kremlin. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Sam Kiley, appreciate the updates this morning. Thank you. And now to Turkey, where Turkey's longtime president, Recep Erdogan, is set to remain in power after winning a high-stakes runoff election. Erdogan beat his opponent with 52 percent of the vote yesterday. That's according to election officials there. Thousands of supporters gathered outside the presidential palace to celebrate his win. Turkey is a key NATO ally, but throughout Erdogan's presidency, he has faced stiff criticism for consolidating power, jailing his political rivals, and developing close ties with Russia and Iran. CNN's Nada Bashir joins us live from Istanbul. So Nada, how are people in Turkey reacting to Erdogan's win now? Well, look, just yesterday we were outside President Erdogan's AK party headquarters as those results were coming in. And I have to say thousands of people were gathered outside those headquarters celebrating that victory for President Erdogan, another term in office after more than two decades in power. And we were speaking to some of those voters. Many of them told us that they felt this was a win for political stability, that they believe in President Erdogan's vision. And we, in fact, we heard from President Erdogan yesterday. He delivered a victory speech to the thousands of people gathered outside the presidential complex in Ankara, telling them this is a moment of unity for the country. Take a listen. It is time to unite and unify around our national goals and national dreams, leaving aside all discussions and disputes regarding the election period. No one has lost today. All 85 million people have won. But of course, there has been criticism from the opposition. We've heard uh, from the opposition alliance leader, Kemal Kıçdaroğlu, speaking yesterday, saying that this is the most unfair period that Turkey has faced from a democratic perspective. But also, crucially, that the fact that this was such a close race shows how polarized this country is and how the will of the people really is changing. Now, of course, President Erdogan faces some pretty big challenges, the economy, the response to the earthquake, and, of course, questions around the future of democracy in this country. Yeah, certainly a tough road ahead for the nation. Uh, Nada Bashir, thank you. And back here at home in the U.S., heading out on the water today. Well, ahead, the dangerous conditions that have officials warning beachgoers along the coast. Plus, a necklace found among the wreckage of the Titanic. No, not the one from the movie. But this new necklace, how artificial intelligence could actually unlock, help unlock the mystery. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. There's something I want you to have. Oh, it's beautiful. But wait a minute, isn't this? Yeah, yes it is. But I thought the old lady dropped it into the ocean in the end. Well, baby, I went down and got it for you. Oh, you shouldn't have. Millennials, do we have your attention now or what? More than a century after the Titanic sank, there are still new treasures being discovered at the wreckage site. A UK-based mapping firm captured these images of gold jewelry found in a digital scan featuring the tooth of a prehistoric shark called a megalodon. Company officials say they will try to identify the owner from pictures of the 2,200 passengers who were on board when the ship sank in 1912. Footage of passengers especially their faces and their clothing, will be analyzed as part of the project. We'll definitely need that, Erica. It is fascinating stuff, <laughs> the fact that they can see all that, too. Okay, so parts of the East Coast bracing now for a possible washout on this Memorial Day. Say it ain't so. The weekend's been so great up till now on the East Coast. CNN's Derek Van Dam joining us with the details. So what are the areas that you're really watching today, Derek? 
Ah, good morning, Erica. And you know what? This kind of summarizes what many along the East Coast got up to this weekend. Lots of cloud, kind of a little bit of a gloomy, unfortunately, Memorial Day extended weekend. Now, it wasn't all gloom. Of course, lots of places across the Northeast. New England, I uh, got to enjoy some sunshine, but really across the Carolinas, this is a very similar picture uh, that was felt and seen along uh, many of the beaches there. It's all thanks to this pesky low pressure system. Now, the National Hurricane Center had identified this area with a very small chance of development. Now, it never officially developed it to anything, but uh, you ask anyone along the coastline from Charleston to Wilmington to Hilton Head and the Outer Banks, they know that they were washed out by uh, rain and gusty winds. And it sure felt like a kind of a tropical-like system. Now, this is the remnants of uh, this low pressure that's still bringing in moisture. We're going to continue to see showers from Norfolk into Char uh, Charlotte and uh, in towards the D.C. area. New York to Boston, you're looking good. In fact, uh, we'll get to more of a detailed beach forecast. Let's take you to Galveston, where we expect dry conditions today. Beautiful weather and Dested as well. So if you're in the Florida Panhandle, get out those beach toys, head to the uh, open waters and enjoy because uh, very nice conditions across the Gulf of Mexico. Even along the Florida Peninsula, uh, Savannah, Hilton Head, you'll end your Memorial Day extended weekend with beautiful beach weather temperatures in the 80s. But then as we head a little further to the north, that's where we'll start to see some of those rain showers and some of that cloud as well. Erica. All right, Derek Van Dam with the latest. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Following a glitchy presidential launch. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis set to really kick things into high gear with stops in several key states this week for his campaign. Plus, my fellow Republicans wanted me to lie. I told them that if they wanted a leader who would lie, they should choose someone else. Former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney urging college graduates there not to compromise with the truce truth, who she called out in her commencement speech coming up next. Welcome back. Governor Ron DeSantis set to hit the campaign trail this week and others are potentially jumping in soon. Pence, Christie, Sununu, possibly Yunkin and maybe even more. But DeSantis, once thought to be a major challenger in the Trump lane, is losing out to the former president in a head-to-head -head matchup in CNN's latest poll. Take a look at this. Joining us now with more on the 2024 race for the White House is some for politics reporter Shelby Talcott and the Messenger's chief White House correspondent and senior political correspondent Amy Parnes. Thank you. Welcome to you both. Thank Good you. to have you. Shelby, I want to start with you. So what do you make of DeSantis's campaign strategy to hit Trump, but not directly just yet? It's really interesting because I actually think compared to most of the other 2024 candidates, he's hitting Trump more aggressively and right off the bat. But it's still this kind of fine line between really going after Trump, like we see some of these, you know, Governor Sununu and some of these other candidates or potential candidates doing versus Nikki Haley, who has really largely refused to criticize him. I think the reason is that there's this fine line with Republican voters where if you go over that line, they, they don't want someone who is going to openly criticize the former president, even if they don't want to vote for him again. Well, to that point, and we just showed the poll numbers here, I mean, he's trailing Trump quite significantly. Can he afford to antagonize Trump? It's a good question. I think when you're down 30-something points in most of the polls at this point, you have nothing to lose. Uh, and I think what he's trying to do here is run on his record, right? Run on his record of COVID in Florida. He's pushing, he's essentially saying to American voters, Trump did 
X, Y, and Z really well, but I can finish the job. And so the problem is DeSantis is a prime target. He's really the only target for Trump at this point. And so if he continues to anger Trump, Trump and his team are very good at, you know, trolling and going after DeSantis. And so I think that's only going to ramp up. We already saw it over the weekend. It'll be so interesting as we watch that. What's fascinating, too, and especially when we put up that graphic at the beginning, the number of Republicans who are running, which some people may forget how many are actually technically doing this at this point, and who may jump on board. I was struck by some of the comments from Chris Sununu over the weekend when he talked specifically about the culture wars. Mm -hmm. So in, in this moment, you'll hear he's not just going after Ron DeSantis, it sounds like when we hear about culture wars. Also, though, directly attacking the former president. Take a listen. If your top priority is culture wars and not managing spending, creating uh, more opportunities at a localized level, draining the swamp, which I was told it was going to happen, never happened a bit. You know, former President Trump blew that one. Securing the border, former President Trump blew that one. Uh, fiscal discipline, the former President Trump blew that one too. So I just think there's a lot of things within the mantle of, what, of the Republican Party uh, that, that we've kind of lost focus on. Maybe lost focus, but what's fascinating is what we see is, I mean, Donald Trump can just sort of sit back with those poll numbers that we just saw and let everybody else fight it out for second place. So many Republicans are trying to be this more moderate, non-Trump lane. Mm -hmm. Does anybody have a chance at this point? I think they're all just waiting for America to implode in a way. They're waiting for that moment. They look back at 2008 and they see what happened to Hillary Clinton, for example, and Barack Obama came out of nowhere. And I think they're all just waiting for an opening. They're waiting for a lawsuit. They're waiting for something else. They're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And they're all going to kind of pounce. Um, but I think DeSantis kind of has I think he, he is looking at past elections, maybe, and saying there is more of an opening. I, I was the guy who won by 18 percentage points in November. I can do it again. Look what I did. And he's already kind of contrasting on COVID, on other issues and saying, look how I did it versus look at how former President Trump handled it. Amy, when it comes to Biden, you say that we may see a Rose Garden strategy. And some of his supporters say that, look, that could work to his advantage, but it could also open him up to further attacks about his age. Exactly. And it worked for him in 2020. He could kind of take a basement strategy, if you will, and stay home and kind of advocate for the pandemic and doing what was right. But I think a lot of Democrats are saying you need to kind of do a little bit more. This could open you up to hiding Biden or um, whatever um, other you know sayings they had in 2020. 20, and I think that's a problem for him. And Democrats will kind of openly admit admit that. Shelby, this also, I think, brings up the messaging issue that has been consistent for Democrats, where President Biden wants to take that Rose Garden strategy. He says, look, I'm doing the job. I'm governing. This is what I'm doing. He ran on uniting the country. He may have bipartisan wins, but he's been challenged, I would say, and Democrats have been challenged in really selling that. So selling this strategy as well adds on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also notable that while most of the 2024 candidates are reluctant to criticize Trump, they have no problems going after Biden. And so that's going to play a role in all of this also, is he's going to be hit potentially, not just from Democrats who want him to maybe be more aggressive with his messaging, you know, get out of the basement, so to speak, um, but also from Republicans who have argued, I've had multiple campaigns argue to me, well, we're not actually running against Trump, we're running against Biden. And you see that in their messaging. Now, of course, they are running against Trump, but they are trying to kind of, that's, that's their strategy.
Can we play a Liz Cheney soundbite? We talked about it just before the break and then discuss it on the other side. So she has yet to rule out a run. But yesterday she did give a commencement speech at her alma mater and directly named Donald Trump. She called him dangerous for his 2020 lies before telling graduates this. Take a listen. No party, no nation, no people can defend and perpetuate a constitutional republic if they accept leaders who have gone to war with the rule of law, with the democratic process, with the Constitution itself. America cannot remain a free nation if we abandon the truth. So as you go out to change the world, resolve that you will stand in truth. And just so really quickly, is there a role for her in the primary for someone who would attack him like this? I think off on the sidelines, I don't think there are very many Republicans, at least traditional Republicans, who support her. But I think she can kind of um, maybe cheer on other nominees to or other candidates to kind of hit him a little bit harder um, to go after independents and maybe some Democrats in the general election who are kind of tired of Biden. A lot more to watch here. Shelby, we'll have to leave it here. But Shelby, Amy, thank you both. Good to have you. Well, coming up, a key to a strong heart could be strong legs. Yes, what a new study just revealed and why you may want to rethink skipping leg day at the gym. Not <laughs> that you ever would. Never skip leg day, <laughs> as my 16-year-old would tell you. Plus, a Ukrainian tennis player booed at the French Open. Why she refused to shake her opponent's hand. Chances are you've heard more than one reference to leg day and not skipping it at the gym. Turns out there are some added advantages to those squats and lunges. They could actually help you have a better outcome after suffering a heart attack. That's according to some new research presented this month to the European Society of Cardiology. Joining us now with the story scene and health reporter Jacqueline Howard, who spoke with the researchers behind the study. So is this really all about your legs? Well, Erica, I can tell you the researchers used quadriceps as a measurement of muscle strength in general. And we know that as you age, you can lose muscle mass. But this study shows if you maintain your muscle strength, that's associated with better heart health outcomes. So what the researchers did, they looked at data on more than 900 older adults. These are older adults ages 57 to 74 who did have a heart attack. Those who had low quadricep strength actually had a higher incidence of developing heart failure after their heart attack compared with those who had high strength. They had a lower incidence, 10.2 incidence rate of later developing heart failure. And the researchers say that this shows that having high quad strength is associated with a 41% lower risk of developing heart failure after a heart attack. So these studies uh, suggest that if you continue strength training while recovering from a heart attack, that can actually lead to better heart health outcomes. So that's the takeaway here, Rahel and Erica. Definitely, definitely a great takeaway and even just leading into it, a reminder of why it's so important to exercise, Absolutely. to do this strength training. I know there are also a few other things that are recommended for people who have suffered a heart attack, ways they can stay healthy and hopefully avoid any other cardiac issues. 
Absolutely. Exercise is obviously important, but also the American Heart Association says, number one, make sure you do take your prescribed medications. Number two, follow up with your doctor for follow-up appointments. Number three, participate in cardiac rehab. Number four, get support from loved ones or other heart attack survivors. And then number five, manage risk factors. So that means eat healthy, don't smoke, exercise, make sure you do maintain all of those healthy lifestyle uh, things that we do to stay healthy, Erica. Jacqueline Howard, appreciate it. Thank you. Well, the Boston Celtics trying to make a little bit of history tonight, a lot of bit of history mm-hmm. tonight in Game 7 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals at 8.30 Eastern. They're set to face off against the Miami Heat after an incredible buzzer-beater win on Saturday. The series is now tied 3-3. to Now, if the Celtics pull off another win tonight, they would be the first NBA team to ever come back from a 3-0 deficit to win a playoff series. CNN Sports correspondent Carolyn Mano is here. So, Carolyn, the Celtics play at home tonight. How much do you think that home court advantage could help? It certainly helps. I mean, the Celtics historically have been very intimidating at home and covering a number of playoff games at the Garden. I can tell you uh, it is going to be a raucous crowd. There's no doubt about that. Overall, the Celtics are 22-5 and at home in Game 7s, but this year's squad has been a little bit different. They're even through the playoffs at home. They've won five games there. They've lost five games there. And when Miami is playing well, they've proven to be a team that is not intimidated by that environment. So that's really the big question is, which version of these two teams are going to show up? Is it going to be the Celtics team that we've seen over the last couple of games that plays really tough defense, that is there in critical moments, that makes good decisions? Or, you know, are we going to see the team that we saw through the first three games where they didn't look like a top seed at all in the conference for Miami? Jimmy Butler is really uh, their go-to player. He is a superstar with Jason Tatum. These two are two of the best in the league. He has been a little bit off over the last couple of games. If he can show up and play really well, then I'm not sure uh, the home court advantage will matter that much at all because of how tough this Miami team has been. But take a listen to what both sides said after this incredible game six, this buzzer beater that sent everybody into a complete frenzy. It felt good. Uh, Everybody's asked me, he's like, did you get it off? And I was like, yeah, I think so. I was just happy. Uh, I mean, like you said, the season was on the line. Uh, We don't want to go home. And so I was just happy uh, we got the win. Obviously, there's a lot we can improve on, and we're going to need to be better for Game 7. I believe, as we all do, like, you're going to get the same test until you pass it. I swear. We can do it. I know that we will do it. We got to go on the road and, and, and win in a very, very, very tough environment. But we're capable of it, so let's get busy. What's been fascinating about this, Rahel and Erica, is that this is a top seed and an eight seed. So when you talk about this stat 0 and 150 in these opportunities to come out of this three-game hole, a lot of times you're talking about a lower seed that dug themselves into a hole early and wasn't able to get out. This is the best team in the East. And so that's why I think a lot of people think that they might, in fact, be able to pull this off. But we'll see. Nobody is skipping leg day. <laughs> Nobody, <laughs> no, yeah, that. Nobody is no. skipping leg day. Everybody's no. ready to go. It Not should be a lot of fun. <laughs> Carolyn Mano, thank you. Sure. A crowd booed a Ukrainian tennis player at the French Open yesterday after she refused to shake her Belarusian opponent's hand. Take a look. See Ukrainian Marta Kostyuk walking right by the Belarusian planer there, player, Arena Sabalenka, who had just won the match. After that match, Sabalenka said at first she thought the crowd was actually booing her. Turns out 
Rabuin, her opponent, the Ukrainian player, has vowed not to shake hands with any Russian or Belarusian players if she believes they have not spoken out enough, in her view, against the war in Ukraine. And she's followed through on that promise now several times. Sabalenka, meantime, is ranked number two in the world and is a favorite to possibly win the French Open. She told reporters she doesn't support the war and that she understands Kostyuk's decision not to shake her hand. Lifeguards nationwide are asking for a lifeline. Just ahead, some of the incentives that are being offered around the country to get more lifeguards in those chairs and in the water amid an ongoing shortage that could put swimmers' lives at risk. Plus, there was Springsteen, Bowie, and now Queen, the rock band. Now in the early stages of selling their music catalog for a hefty price. Why this deal could mark the biggest sale in history. We'll be right back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Britney Spears earlier in the show and now in Baywatch. So many good throwbacks today. <laughs> and we're not done yet. It's only, it's not even the first hour. Stay tuned. <laughs> well, for at least the third summer in a row, America is facing a lifeguard shortage. It's a problem that could have life or death consequences. Half of the nation's 309,000 public pools will be affected by the shortage, either reducing their hours or just closing altogether. That's according to the American Lifeguard Association. Well, now cities across the country are once again upping their lifeguard recruitment efforts by offering various incentives that include raises and bonuses. Joining us now from Cocoa Beach, Florida, is Wyatt Ornith. He is the national spokesman for the American Lifeguard Association. Wyatt, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Water Safety Month, Beach Safety Week. And remember the sacrifice for this Memorial Day. Absolutely. So, Wyatt, you say that we are in the midst of a lifeguard crisis in America. What's happening here? And explain to us what's behind the shortage. Well, we've always had a decline in uh, lifeguard, recruiting lifeguards uh, ever since Baywatch, believe it or not, like you said. In my day, we all wanted to be lifeguards because beautiful people, helicopters, fast boats, diving, it was a job we wanted. And it kind of tapered off. And then we got hit by COVID. And then COVID just nailed us. We, we saw 309,000 parks and pools. We saw a third of those with closures and reduction in hours. This year, we're seeing over half of those. And so when you talk about it in that respect, we see you there in Cocoa Beach. So Florida, I think for most of us, is a place where we could imagine you would have lifeguards year-round. This is a full-time job. In other areas, we're talking about pools and beaches and lakes that are maybe only open for the summer. Where is, where is the need greatest, or is it just across the board? Well, let's identify there are three types of lifeguarding. Uh, you have the thrill parks with the water slides and the lazy river. You have the recreational centers where, there, where you have swim lessons and swim uh, meets where they comp compete and have fun for swimming for the neighborhood. And then let's go to open water, which are beaches and lakes. So they all get affected to a degree. The one that's the most stable, believe it or not, is the open water because a lot of the beach communities are under the fire department which have a year-round contingency, not so much for the parks and the thrill parks. Wyatt, you talked about how once upon a time when Baywatch was out, for example, everyone wanted to be a lifeguard. It was sort of an exciting and attractive path of career. And you say that lifeguarding needs a, a whole remodel. What does that look like? Well, you know, I think that 
America needs to take lifeguarding serious. We're, we're requiring young adults for high school, college kids for the summer to come out and watch your children. And we need to take a better look at that. They're part of the EMS system, just like police, fire, and hospital rescue. So we got to take it more serious, the fact that we need to train individuals, get them excited at an early age, and offer them a career path forward. They come out for a season, they lifeguard, they get a little training, they go off, they love what they did, but they go into the fire service, the police, or even the military. We need to bring them back to the lifeguarding. Are you seeing that start to change at all? Are you seeing that there's enough incentive there to really get people excited at a younger age and stick with it? Well, I am seeing a lot of creative incentive with sign-on bonuses up to $3,000 know, if you qualify. But I don't think that's enough. I think that you know we lost a lot of interest with the young ones uh, going to be influencers. The pandemic hit. They got other jobs with retail and restaurants. I think something needs to change. Uh, if we focus on perhaps you know the fire services or the EMS services managing them, that might help out because then it also gives them a career path forward. Mm. And let's go back and do junior lifeguard programs across the states and get people excited, learn to swim, and maybe that'll help. You know, I just saw an advertisement for a junior lifeguard program in my town, so maybe they are starting to listen and, and hearing you. Wyatt Werneth, really appreciate you joining us this morning. It's an important topic. I'm glad we're addressing it. Thanks. You know, Erica, it's interesting. We talk about the labor shortage that clearly still exists in certain mm -hmm. industries, uh, lifeguarding being one of them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I tell you, I keep seeing the notices every year. All of the camps, all of the pools, they are in desperate need. Well, we'll see. CNN This Morning continues right now. They have a deal to raise the debt ceiling and avoid an entirely preventable economic catastrophe. Republicans are going to support the deal. It's a remarkable conservative accomplishment. They are not cutting the deficit and they are not cutting spending. I strongly urge both chambers to pass that agreement. Ukraine's military says it's destroyed almost 70 aerial targets launched by Russia in its latest onslaught. The Ukrainians are calling this one of the largest attacks using those Iranian-made Shahed drones. Almost all of them were shot down. Almost. Russia will only face defeat. Turkey's incumbent president Erdogan extends his tenure in power to a third decade. There is a real sense of jubilation, of triumph. These are some of his most ardent supporters. This was potentially his closest electoral squeak, and they still couldn't defeat him. Ken Paxton is calling his impeachment vote a, quote, politically motivated sham. The first attorney general in Texas to be impeached. This is a case of Republicans policing Republicans in the state of Texas. Corruption has now been voted out, a significant step for the integrity of the state. It's going to be a big hit right here. Oh, no! crowd. Everyone kept asking me why I haven't won this race. They look at you like you're a failure. I'm so glad to be here. Good morning, everyone. 7 a.m. hour. Good to be with you today. I'm Rahel Solomon. And I'm Erica Hill. Nice to have you with us. Uh, boy, a lot happening over the weekend. I thought so. Even for a Monday, it's uh, it's been busy so far. And over the weekend, a lot yeah. to discuss. Uh, and it is, of course, Memorial Day, as we observe this day, where we honor and remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice. Live pictures for you here of the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. It's a day that many celebrate as the unofficial start to summer, but also always important to remember that it's a day of remembrance and a really somber day as well. 
President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have reached a deal to raise the debt limit. And now they are racing to convince lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to back the plan. The House is set to vote on the deal just two days from now. Mr. President, what do you say to members of your own party who say you've made too many concessions in this deal? We'll find I didn't. I think you're going to get a majority of Republicans voting for this bill. This is a good bill for the American public. The president agreed with this bill. So I think there's going to be a lot of Democrats that go vote for it, too. And the House Progressive Caucus already speaking out against new work requirements in the deal for food stamp recipients. It is uh, really unfortunate that the president opened the door to this. And um, while at the end of the day, you know, perhaps this will, because of the exemptions, perhaps it will be okay. I can't commit to that. I, d I really don't know. And the conservative House Freedom Caucus also pushing back against the deal, saying it does not cut enough spending. Some key members tweeted, no Republican capitulation and hold the line. As for the debt ceiling, the latest warning from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen estimates that the government could run out of money to pay all of its debts on time, the so-called X date on June 5th, one week from today. CNN Chief Correspondent Manu Raju, live for us on Capitol Hill. So Manu, for those of us just waking up on a Monday morning who may not have been following this Saturday and Sunday, break down the deal for us. Yeah, look, this was a hard-fought negotiation, a negotiation that the White House didn't want to have to begin with. Remember, President Biden, for about three months, more than three months, just refused to sit down with Kevin McCarthy because he demanded the debt ceiling be increased, $31.4 trillion debt ceiling be increased without any conditions, without any spending cuts, warning that averting, trying to do so would avert a fiscal disaster here. But Kevin McCarthy had a different approach. He demanded spending cuts, a whole slew of conditions. Ultimately, the White House was forced to negotiate and make a range of concessions that is angering both sides of the aisle, some liberals upset and also some conservatives upset with the deal that McCarthy cut. Now, a little bit about the deal. Two-year suspension of the debt limit essentially would expire in January of 2025. That has caused some concern on the right. They believe that it should have only been one year for allowing them, preventing them from fighting this again next year in an election year. Also, it would ensure that veterans' medical care is not impacted by the spending cuts that would have happened across the board on domestic programs. There's a essentially a, a, a for defense programs. There's not a cut for defense, but that has caused some concerns among defense hawks who believe that that is not they need to have more money for the Pentagon. So expect some pushback from the right on that. But there's also uh, it would expand work requirements for food stamp recipients that has caused a lot of angst among on the left. And it has a whole host of other issues, such as cutting IRS funding that's caused some concern among Democrats as well as rescinding unspent COVID aid. That actually had some bipartisan support as part of this deal. And one thing to watch that actually could generate some opposition from progressives is that it would actually expedite construction of a pipeline in West Virginia, a big priority for West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, but something that progressives in particular were upset about. Now, what the White House has been trying to tell Democrats, what they did last night in all the uh, two briefings with the House and Senate Democrats, was they could have been a lot worse. One of the things that did not make it in this bill was to impose new work requirements for recipients of the Medicaid health insurance program. Of course, that's a low-income health care 
program, Republicans had pushed for new work requirements for those recipients. That did not get in the bill. They also argued a whole host of other issues, such as the president's signature Inflation Reduction Act was not cut as Republicans had pushed for, which is what they're trying to convince were Democrats. This is the best we can get, even as a lot of folks on the right saying they, those cuts should have been imposed and McCarthy should have demanded more and should not have given the president as long of a debt limit suspension as it's in this current deal, causing a lot of angst on both wings of the party as they try to get this through Congress. Wrong. A lot of angst, a lot of unpredictability. Manu Raju, thank you. Yeah. We shall see. Yes, yeah. we will. Uh, let's bring in now CNN economics commentator and Washington Post opinion columnist, Catherine Rempel, and former Democratic congressman from New York, Max Rose, who's also, of course, a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. He received a Purple Heart, among other honors. Nice to see you both this morning. I'm going to start with you. When we look at what's happening here, and I think, you know, as Manu laid out for us, we know there's a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of angst on both sides of the aisle here. But uh, we press people a lot, and we say, I need a yes or no answer. As as you know all too well. Sure. And Congresswoman Jayapal actually gave Jake Tapper a one-word answer when he said, does the president basically need to be worried here? And she said, yes, you should be worried about progressives. If the White House messaging is, hey, it could have been worse, is that really enough to convince progressives? It will be enough for it to pass. It will not be enough to convince progressives. So you have this incredibly fascinating dynamic right now where Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden and potentially also the leader of the Democratic caucus, Hakeem Jeffries, will all be working in tandem together to pass this legislation, of course, to avoid economic catastrophe, but also because it is in their political best interests. Now, with this uh, bill, the administration has certainly cemented the fact that it is absolutely, resolutely committed to bipartisanship and normalcy. And in the process, I actually think that they have boxed the Republican Party into this really awful corner, whereby now the Republican Party has to advocate for increased spending, of course, because the debt ceiling will be raised by trillions of dollars, and for increased social service spending, now with an expansion of SNAP benefits for veterans as well as the homeless. On the other hand, the Republican Party can say the Democratic Party did not get any of their priorities in there. And that, yes, is true as well. So it might be the sign of a great negotiation that nobody is happy right now. But this will certainly pass. It will pass because of moderates on both sides of the aisle. And they will largely do that because they do not want to be the reason for economic calamity. Catherine, let me bring you into the conversation because there's been a lot of drama. There's been a lot of noise. And you say in a recent op-ed that... There's already been some harm done, even if we don't actually default. Yes. Look, I look at this deal and say, how is it any different than what we would have reasonably expected to get from the usual annual appropriations process? It's really not that different, given divided government. Um, Republicans didn't get the draconian cuts that they asked for. They didn't get the Medicaid work requirements. They didn't get some of the other things that I was worried about, including basically undermining the entire regulatory state. They basically got flat spending, which, again, is what I would have expected coming out of the appropriations process. So the question is, fine, but what was it all for, mm -hmm. right? We've gone through all of this drama. We've gone through economic turmoil, basically embarrassing ourselves on the world stage, Biden having to cut his Asia trip short, the G7 kind of being overshadowed by all of this, uh, not to mention probably higher borrowing costs as a result of some market stresses. And we ended up where we would have been had this whole brinksmanship episode never happened. So on the one hand, I'm glad 
uh, that we, uh, knock on wood, you know, don't look like we're about to have uh, a fina- financial apocalypse and, we d- and that Republicans didn't get all these other things in. But, like, what was the point? We, we could have avoided all of this. Catherine, you and I have talked about, in passing, actually, here at CNN, your how you feel about IRS reform. And I'm curious what you think about the concessions it looks like the IRS reform will, will receive uh, as part of this bill. I mean, do you think it would be significant? Well, they're cutting about a quarter of the funding that was uh, appropriated to the IRS last year, which I think is actually quite a bad thing. Um, That money has a huge return on investment, both because it means better customer services and taxpayers are happier and they're more voluntarily compliant, and it means that the IRS has the resources to go after wealthy tax cheats and corporations. So I don't think this was a good place to cut money. In fact, it will expand deficits. That said, you know, they did some kind of accounting gimmicks where it doesn't look like it's materially going to affect the IRS's um, overhaul in the near term. It'll probably be more of a problem several years from now. But again, it's it's not making it easier for rich people to cheat on their taxes doesn't seem like the thing you would do if you really cared about getting uh, deficits under control. I'm sort of interested, though, that will undoubtedly be put forth as a win for Republicans. They got some of that Mm -hmm. money back. How does this play to your point of, look, if everybody's unhappy, then I guess this is a good negotiation, right? Because nobody comes out the winner here. But how do you sell that to constituents? Well, there's a few major hurdles here just in terms of selling it to legislators. First of all, Kevin McCarthy has to get over half of his own caucus to support this before it even gets to the floor. And they have not confirmed that they will do this. And that whipping process, as it's known, behind the scenes is not fact-based, This, at this point, will be deeply personal. The speaker wants this. The leader wants this. The president wants this. Get in line or else there's going to be consequences down the road. You can't take the politics out of politics. How good is McCarthy at doing that? Because typically Republicans have done a very good job of getting their, their caucus to fall in line. We are seeing something a little bit different here, which certainly we saw play out when he was trying to get that gavel. Sure, sure. So he... He will be fine at getting, I believe, more than 50 percent because you've already seen leaders uh, in the moderate wing of that party. I I wouldn't call them moderate. Let's just say less extreme wing of that party uh, expressing their support for this. With that being said, though, you know, the Democratic Party, I think that in that whipping process that we're seeing right now, what people will be upset by. Yes, is the policy, but they're going to be more upset. Legislators will be more upset about two other things. One, did we get anything out of this at our, our own priorities? Democratic, core Democratic priorities, they got victories. What did we get? But secondly, I think that there will be certain angst around giving Kevin McCarthy a win. So they're going to want to see the Republicans show momentum around this, show that they can pass this themselves or come somewhat close to it before Democrats start raising their hands and saying that, uh, that they'll go about doing this. And of course, last to conclude, there's going to be folks that want to turn this into a Christmas tree as well. I certainly wouldn't rule out some people thinking about amendments. How can I get my little appropriation assorted with that? Um, you'll see a lot of it that over the coming days. It wouldn't be Congress if that didn't happen, right? <laughs> as you know all too well. <laughs> Thank you both. And thank you for your service. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Happening right now, you are looking at new video. We're going to show this into you here. So this is a new video from Davenport, Iowa. Uh, We told you last hour about rescue efforts that are underway. Search teams there are looking for possible missing residents this morning after part of this historic apartment building collapsed in that downtown area of Davenport overnight. At least seven people have been rescued, many others injured. The mayor at this point says that several people do remain 
missing and unaccounted for. Some of our concerns at this time is still the structural stability of the building and trying to locate unaccounted for individuals. Crews have just started to enter the building again to do a secondary search and also start with the rescue of the debris pile that we have at the bottom of the building. We will continue to do that until this operation is completed. So there is no word yet as to what caused that building to collapse. We are standing by, though. There is a press conference scheduled for next hour. Not in Texas, where the attorney general of Texas is firing back after state lawmakers voted to impeach him. Republican attorney general Ken Paxton is calling the unprecedented move a, quote, politically motivated sham. The GOP-led House of Representatives voted to impeach Paxton on Saturday after an investigation found that he participated in a pattern of corruption. But he insists he has done nothing wrong. CNN's Ed Levandera is live in Dallas this morning. So, Ed, Paxton is temporarily suspended from his duties Bring us up to speed. What happens here? Well, it was a stunning rebuke of this attorney general that has been elected by voters here in this state three times. He was just reelected last year. And this really all stems from uh, many allegations and controversies that have been swirling around him from seven years. But clearly, uh, lawmakers here in the last few months in Texas uh, have had enough. That vote came to 121 to 23. So a uh, huge number of Republicans voting uh, to impeach uh, Ken Paxton. 20 articles of impeachment in all, uh, which include charges of bribery, uh, uh, conspiracy, abuse of power, unfit for office. So uh, really stunning charges here that he now faces uh, in the Texas Senate side. Uh, But Ken Paxton says that these charges are politically motivated uh, from the beginning, uh, by the Speaker of the of the Texas House Feelings Coalition of Democrats and liberal Republicans is now in lockstep with the Biden administration, the abortion industry, anti-gun zealots, and woke corporations to sabotage my work as Attorney General. So clearly, Paxton here kind of uh, covering himself in the work that he's been doing of going against the Biden administration to try to win political capital here in this state. But Democrats and those who voted for this impeachment say they've had enough of this attorney general. Either this is going to be the beginning of the end of his criminal reign, or God help us with the harms that will come to all Texans if he is allowed to stay the top cop on the take. And remember, these articles of impeachment were brought uh, by Republicans in, in this, uh, in, in, on the Texas House side. Uh, Republicans control vir- virtually every lever of government here uh, in this state. So it really is a stunning development. Stunning and important to, to point out there, as you did, Ed. Um, so what happens next for Paxton? Well, he has been temporarily removed from office, and now they prepare for uh, the trial on the Texas Senate side. And this is where it becomes a little bit more uh, interesting. Uh, There are 31 state senators here in the state. Paxton's own wife is a state senator here in this state. There are 12 Democrats in, in that, uh, on the Senate side. So th- there would need to be nine Republicans, depending on what Angela Paxton does, uh, to uh, c- convict uh, uh, Ken Paxton. So uh, we'll have to wait and see how this happens. There's no clear date on exactly when this trial is going to take place, though. Just a lot to watch happening in the state of Texas. Ed Levandera, thank you. And coming up, Russia launching its largest drone attack yet on Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. 
Here at home, it has been a violent and bloody Memorial Day weekend in the city of Chicago. More than 35 people shot, at least nine of them killed. Multiple shootings across the city. We're going to take you there live for the very latest. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So that sound, and in there you can see as it lights up, those images of Ukrainian forces repelling an intense barrage of Russian drone attacks. Ukraine's military says its forces shot down nearly 70 drones that were targeting Kyiv. It's being called Russia's largest attack to date on the capital city, using Iranian-made drones, notably. And it comes as CNN teams on the ground heard several explosions in Kyiv overnight. Now, these Russian attacks also come as Ukraine nears the launch of this long-awaited counteroffensive we've been talking about. One of Ukraine's top generals recently posted this highly produced video. It shows Ukrainian troops preparing for battle and ends with troops chanting a message that calls for victory for a decisive offensive. Joining us now with more, retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons. Good to see you as always. Um, so when we when we talk about this, what would this potential counteroffensive at this point, what would it look like? Yeah, just see it. Look at a map. You can see Russian forces in two separate locations. I believe any counteroffensive is going to cut these Russian forces in half here and threaten Crimea. I think that is the issue here for the Ukrainian forces. But they're not going to do that until they have the combined arms, the shock effect, the tanks, uh, helicopters, Bradley fighting vehicles, more men, more equipment. Russia still has had setbacks, uh, lost uh, uh, a lot of men, low morale, but they're still Russia. They could go on the active defense and they still are a very formidable opponent. They certainly have time on their side. They can wait it out a bit longer. Right. In terms of the counteroffensive and weather, weather plays a critical role in when we start to see that offensive. Mm -hmm. Explain to us how weather plays into all of this. Yes, yeah, so weather and terrain, it's part of a, a commander's assessment with regard to the tactical situation on the ground. Um, it, it, on a ground war, though, not like uh, D-Day, for example, when weather really impacted the seas and the like, I think what you're going to see here, uh, the soil, where there's concern that, uh, for example, uh, satellite images show that uh, the, the soil is hardening up. It's a little better. That will provide, again, those tanks a little more mobility on the ground. There, The, the Ukraine military has the advantage. It's a home. They, they know the terrain. They know where the bridges are. They know where things are going. But I think it's still a small effect. I think the combat forces are really more important. I see. So give us a sense of, of timing. I feel that we've been talking about this for a long time, this potential counteroffensive. Are we approaching the right moment? Yeah, we go back to you go back to that. And you, you have to say that, again, they're not going to put their troops in a situation where they're going to fail. They need to succeed. They, they do pick the time. They pick the place and location. I'm not sure they have enough troops ready to go. We haven't seen, for example, reports of massing of equipment in this in the areas in the south. We, we hear a lot of uh, reports about what's going on in this part here in Bakhmut in the west. But I, again, from from my perspective, from a military perspective, I think this is where the counteroffensive takes place. And it we don't have that equipment there yet. It's not ready to go. Any sense of when it might be? Because, I mean, the spring offensive, I think, strategically is really important yeah. for Ukraine to be able to show that they can do this. Well, I, th I think, let's say, let's give it another 90 days and assess the situation there. You still have these crews, for example, some of the weapon systems, for example, the tanks, the Leopard, the Abrams. Uh, these are the, the things that are going to make a difference. These are the shock effects that will make a difference on the ground. And they're just not, they're training troops in Grafenvir. We have, they have troops in the United States still. Mm -hmm. The Patriot missiles have been effective. The way Ukraine wins is a combined arms fight and, and synchronizing all these troops, that takes time. 
um, on this Memorial Day. Thank you, as always, for your service. It's also uh, a special moment for you as we remember the sacrifices that were made. Also, your son, yeah. we want to point out, was just promoted. Yeah. Uh, he's on board the USS Cole. Um, just tell us a little bit more about him and, and what he's doing. Sure. The USS Cole, let's talk about that ship was attacked in October of 2000, really the beginning of the global war on terror. Um, we got to see it here in Fleet Week. It drove past uh, the world, uh, the, the, the Freedom Tower there as well. Um, USS Cole has, uh, celebrates Memorial Day every day. There are 17 stars that exist on their side there where the attack took place. There's a soldier that gets, or a sailor gets down every day and makes sure that those, uh, those stars are polished. They don't walk on those things. Um, it just shows, the, again, the level of sacrifice. And, and from my perspective um, as a veteran, and I just ask folks for today as a day of remembrance, just... Um, be reflective and, and, and be worthy of the sacrifice mm -hmm. that's been made by those that, that came before us. So, uh, um, so it, it's, uh, it's something that uh, we like to do. Yeah, it's an yeah, important reminder. Yeah, to remember thank the you. reason that we have this day. Yeah. Major Lyons, thank you as always. Thanks. Uh, three people killed, five wounded in a shooting at a motorcycle rally in New Mexico. What officials believe was behind that violence. And you know the saying, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there? Well, apparently not if you're in California. Why the insurance company is halting home insurance sales in the state. I'll be right back. A deadly holiday weekend in Chicago. Police say shootings across the city left more than 35 people wounded, many of them innocent bystanders. Of those shot, nine have died from their injuries. CNN's Adrian brought us live in Chicago this morning. Uh, what more are you hearing from the community this morning, Adrian? Well, Erica, good morning to you. Right now, we know the number of people who have been killed over the weekend, at least nine. We do not have their names, but we do know the victims, some of the shooting victims, I should say, youngest 16, more than 35 people were shot this holiday weekend. And here in the community, people are hoping for a safer summer under Brandon Johnson, that is the city's new mayor. Listen in. It's going to take all of us, not just the police, not just city government, to ensure that our communities can live and thrive in peace and safety. We want everyone to be safe and enjoy the city, but we will not tolerate any engaging of criminal activity or disorderly conduct. To all residents, please be safe and make safe choices. So this morning, people are waking up with some tough news. More than 35 people have been shot since Friday at 5 p.m. That's when the Chicago Police Department starts tracking that data up until this morning. More than 35 shot. At least nine people have died. And those shootings again occurred between Friday afternoon to Sunday morning. Erica. Adrian brought us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And at least three people are dead and five others wounded after gunfire erupted. This happened at a biker rally in the town of Red River, New Mexico. The event draws tens of thousands to the area for Memorial Day weekend. Well, this man, Jacob David Castillo, has been charged with murder. Police say that confrontation between rival gangs is what's behind the shootings. We're being told it was over somebody taking a picture with a different gang. It's something as stupid as that. State Police Chief also says that several other suspects are also in custody. State Farm 
stopping home insurance sales in the state of California. Why? Well, the company is citing in part rapidly growing catastrophe risks. The insurance giant announcing Friday it will no longer accept new applications for business and personal lines, property and casualty insurance. A decision, that decision rather, went into effect over the weekend. According to the company, though, it does not impact personal auto insurance. CNN reporter Matt Egan here with us now. So, uh, Matt, walk us through this decision. What does this really mean for folks? Well, Rahel and Erica, this is a big deal. State Farm is not some tiny player in California. It's actually the state's biggest home insurer. And now they are retreating in California. They cited three specific reasons. One, skyrocketing rebuilding costs, which is a particularly big problem because California has a wildfire problem. And these first two issues have made it hard for insurance companies to get reinsurance, which is a way for insurance companies to pass on risk. It's kind of like insurance for insurance companies. Now, here's what State Farm says in a statement. They said, it's necessary to take these actions now to improve the company's financial strength. Now, let's look at the inflation part of this story, which is this shows um, producer prices for construction materials. And you can see since 2000, inflation was kind of rising steadily. And then, boom, 2020 hit and it's going straight up. And this is just materials. It doesn't even include labor. Now, we know California has a wildfire problem, but look at this, 7,000 plus wildfires. That's per year. And this, these fires have consumed more than 2 million acres, again, per year. If you look at the worst, the most destructive California wildfires, three of them, 2018, um, 2020, 2017, three of them have occurred in just the last six years. The campfire in 2018 was not just the state's deadliest um, wildfire ever. It was also the most expensive. In fact, it was the most expensive natural disaster in the entire world in 2018. Wow. So you mentioned, Matt, that State Farm was the largest insurer, I think you said, in the state of California, but it's also not the first one to pull back in that state. That's right. Um, we've seen a number of insurers do just that. AIG has reportedly dropped thousands of um, some of, of their home insurance clients uh, in the last year. Chubb has done the steam and now State Farm. Listen, I think for the longest time, wildfires were just kind of the cost of doing business in California. But now increasingly, home insurers have decided it's just not worth the risk. And the problem for consumers is all of this means less competition, fewer choices, and unfortunately, higher prices. Matt Egan with the latest for us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Not a new video that shows what happened after a speeding car in Florida plowed into the waters off the beach. Take a look at this. So witnesses reported this car going about 50 miles an hour, nearly hitting several families and their dogs on the beach and just missing a child on its way into the water. The driver, a 26-year-old Orlando woman, has been charged with DUI and also reckless driving. Police say her blood alcohol was nearly twice the legal limit. Talk about a close call. And as states across the country see more and more books being banned at schools and local libraries, lawmakers in New Jersey are fighting back with legislation to protect against book bans. We will speak to those lawmakers next. Very much looking forward to that conversation. Before we go to break, though. Definitely not a poor boy. A source telling CNN discussions are well underway for Universal Music Group to purchase Queen's music catalog to the tune of more than a billion dollars. So if that deal goes through, it would be the biggest single artist catalog sale in history. 
This more than doubles Bruce Springsteen's $500 million sale in 2021. Justin Bieber, the estate of David Bowie, and Sting have all recently completed sales of their respective music catalogs as well. So this deal expected to close within a month. Welcome back. Book bans are on the rise in school districts across America. And just the last week, the acclaimed poem by Amanda Gorman for President Biden's inauguration, remember this, was moved out of the elementary section of a Miami-Dade County public school. That's after a parent complaint and school review. And in Iowa, the governor just signed a law that will restrict education about gender identity and sexual orientation and also ban books with certain sexual content from school libraries. Similar laws restricting certain types of books in libraries have also recently gone into effect in other states. The free speech organization, PEN America, reports that there were more book bans during the fall of 2022 semester than in each of the prior two semesters. The bans were most prevalent in states like Texas, Florida, Missouri, Utah, and South Carolina. But in at least one state, lawmakers are actually pushing back. New legislation in New Jersey would protect against the banning of books in public libraries and schools. And if passed, any library that bans books could see its funding cut. Joining us now are the two Democratic state senators who introduced the bill, Andrew Zwicker and Teresa Ruiz. Thank you both for being with us this morning. Good Thank morning. Thank you for having us. Uh, Senator, I want to start with you. Why did you decide to introduce this bill? So I grew up in a house with books. My mom was a high school English teacher who always talked about the importance of ideas, of reading books to learn about what's going on in the world around us. But it was when I talked to a librarian in the district that I represent who talked about how she stood up to the censorship, she stood up to the bullying and the harassment that she received, that I knew it was time for us to do something about this in New Jersey. This is Memorial Day, mm -hmm. right? Where people have sacrificed their life for our freedom. Mm -hmm. And that includes the freedom of expression, the freedom of speech and the freedom of ideas. It has been really interesting to see some of the some of the hostility geared toward librarians in the state of New Jersey because of some of these efforts. Uh, Teresa, I want to get to you. What book banning efforts are we seeing specifically in New Jersey and, and what do you think is driving it? So clearly at, at the top of the segment, you indicated Texas and Florida, but New Jersey is not immune to this. Right now you see school board meetings inundated with uh, this kind of of. of concept to get rid of books at a time where we should be focused on social and emotional wealth of students and whether they can read or not at grade level, right? Primarily. And so you, you see this, this kind of what I would indicate and describe as just complete hate. If someone doesn't want something read in their household, that's their own private ideology. It should not be bled into public spaces. For me, it's clearly important as a Puerto Rican woman with so many times that we were in annotation in our history books at a time where people are actually putting us up on shelves, seeing ourselves on different pages and in spaces to see this rise up again. And it's 2023. It's time for us to stop. I, I want to read for you because it hasn't been without its criticism, without its controversy. Uh, one tweet, one Republican state senator said, quote, I strongly disagree with the premise that all books, regardless of content, should or must be available in every public school without regard to age appropriateness. Middle school students shouldn't be reading Fifty Shades of Grey or Genderqueer. Is she wrong? That's something that the household has to take care of, right? I mean, our, 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 our libraries are public spaces where people should go in and, and have freedom of thought and opportunities to explore and find themselves in different spaces. A parent has their independent right to exercise what they believe is appropriate for their own family. And let's not forget that in school libraries, librarians are choosing what are the appropriate books that should be in a library. So the premise of the quote 
is completely wrong when it comes to our schools and our libraries in our schools. But what about the concern that in proposing this type of legislation and cutting funding, that essentially you're taking the choice away just in a different way from librarians and local communities to decide what's best for them. This, this is a minority that's really pushing this agenda. And so we shouldn't have uh, 10 people outsize what 10,000 and 10 million of people feel in this country and in, and in our state. And I think it's our, it's our responsibility and our right to be sure that those public spaces are protected. This is a, the opposite, right? Because this is a small, well-organized group of people. But this is about the freedom to read. So this is about the ability for a parent to say, hey, I want you to read this book or I don't want you to read this book, right? But our job right now is to make sure that these, these abilities to read and parental choice to happen. If you're concerned about a book in a library, yeah. I would urge you to talk to your child also about what they're seeing online because it is so much worse online than what we're seeing in a book. Books or on are television. On television, right? I, I want to... A recent Washington Post analysis found that books about LGBTQ are quickly becoming the biggest target, and a large percentage of the complaints, as you both point out, are from a very small but hyperactive uh, group of adults. Is that also the case in New Jersey? We've certainly seen that in some of the other parts of the country, but is that also what's happening in New Jersey? So clear. I, I was going to say, absolutely. And just to be clear, 40% of the books that are being challenged right now are LGBTQ themes. Another 40% have characters of color. And what's happened is this small group of people are inflaming people and making it more divisive in New Jersey and around the country at a time when we need to be more inclusive. So we saw it firsthand in Essex County. There was a library that was challenged. And the number of people who wanted to eliminate books, you could count on your hands. And the community that came out in support of those public freedoms outweighed that minority. Do you have enough support to get this through? Absolutely. I believe so. Absolutely. Okay. We'll be watching. Senators, thank you both. Thanks for being with thank us. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Well, a tentative deal on the debt ceiling has been reached, and now the battle is on to get lawmakers on board. We will speak to White House Communications Director Ben LaBolt coming up next. Plus, you are looking at live pictures of Arlington National Cemetery and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. This Memorial Day, we are taking time to honor those who have made the ultimate sacrifice. We'll be right back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. An important reminder on this Memorial Day, the reason for the day, of course, is to honor fallen service members, those who made the ultimate sacrifice, giving their lives for this country. Joining us now, CNN military analyst, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, who served for 37 years, Always good to see you, uh, and I especially appreciate that we are continuing a tradition that we have with you uh, where you share on this day a very personal way that you honor those who died in service, not just on this Memorial Day, but I know this is something that you go back to on a number of other days and moments throughout the year. Uh, walk us through how you are honoring them and why this has become such an important way to do that for you. Well, good. first of all, good morning, Rahel and, and Eric, and, and thank you for continuing this tradition. This started somewhat as a fluke about six years ago on CNN when I first joined uh, you all as a military analyst. And I was mentioning uh, this box that three of us have, um, General Dempsey and uh, General Scaparotti and myself. Uh, and it started in 2003 uh, as General Dempsey, as our division commander when we were in Iraq, started making cards at memorial services. Um, and, and in this box, if I were to open it up, 
uh, you would see two, like, there's the picture of it, is uh, 253 cards, which I have from multiple combat tours of soldiers, sailors, airmen, uh, and allies that served under me and, and made the ultimate sacrifice during our tours in combat. And on a daily basis, uh, I open that box, I have it here on my desk, and pick out one or two cards to think about where they would be today. Uh, you know, some of these things occurred 10, 20 years ago, in some cases in 2003. Uh, and, and these young 20-year-olds who are frozen in time with their pictures uh, would have been now in their 40s or maybe even early 50s in some cases, would have had a family around them. And on the top of the box, uh, we all imprinted something called Make It Matter. And we always thought when we got together after these memorial services that it was our duty to live on uh, for those that were uh, sacrificed uh, for their country and defending their country. And that's just a daily tradition that I have. And, and it's especially um, pointed on, on this Memorial Day. And it's a beautiful tradition, and we're so honored that you would share it with us and our audience and everyone at home. Can you tell us about some of these heroic soldiers there? Yeah, I, I, I picked out a couple this morning, and some of some of these I don't really know who I picked before in some of our uh, hits, uh, but there were four specifically, uh, two from uh, the 2003-2004 tour that we had in Baghdad, and then two more from uh, my time as a division commander of the 1st Army Division Task Force Iron in 2007 and 8 in northern Iraq. Uh, Jonathan Falanico, a young private, uh, was killed in action in October of 2003. Uh, this is his picture. Uh, you see it there on the screen. He was the son uh, of one of our sergeant's majors who actually just died a few months ago himself. Uh, but Jonathan was a brand new soldier. He had just arrived from basic training and his, and his father had to escort him uh, back to Germany where they picked up his mother and then escort the body, something that no father should be asked to do. Uh, on to Arlington. Um, another picture from 2004 was of Second Lieutenant Lenny Cowherd, and I actually met him uh, when he was a cadet at West Point. He was in one of the history classes uh, of with my son, our, our our oldest, our youngest son. I'm sorry, our old, our excuse me, our youngest son uh, introduced me to him. Took him to dinner at Gettysburg when they were doing a staff ride, and uh, just a few months after he was commissioned. He was killed in action by a sniper's bullet when we were extended in Iraq. Uh, the next one is uh, Staff Sergeant Carlita Davis, who is a, um, uh, she was a, a young mother uh, from Alaska. She had a bunch of children and, and one of her soldiers was sick uh, on a day he was supposed to go out on a patrol. So she volunteered to take his place. And unfortunately that patrol was hit by several IEDs and Staff Sergeant Davis was killed in action. And then the final one is a very difficult one for me because uh, it's Corporal Luke Runyon, who lived in Germany. Uh, my wife was in Germany at the time. Most of us had deployed from there. And, uh, he had a young family back in Grafenbeer. And unfortunately, he had just re-enlisted to stay in the Army after talking to our Sergeant Major, Roger Blackwood. And uh, uh, he was killed, by again, by uh, in a small arms assault. Uh, against al-Qaeda terrorists. So these are some of the, the 253 that are in this box. Uh, every one of them has a picture that are frozen in time. Uh, they could have been, we don't know. We don't know what their, where their life would have taken them. Uh, but each one of them 
are responsible for us living in freedom. And, and that's the kind of thing we should be thinking about on Memorial Day. You, you showed us how the top of your box, it says, make it matter. You wrote in an opinion piece for CNN a few years ago about how we as Americans can do that, how we can make it matter. And you wrote how we can earn it. So on this Memorial Day, how would you recommend that Americans make it matter, that they, that they show that they've earned it, earned this freedom that so many fought and ultimately died for? Well, you know, Erica, it's interesting because I realized for the first time this year that I'm, I'm decades away from the time I've served. These young soldiers are fading into the background. I worked with an organization called the American Battle Monuments Commission, which is celebrating at 26 cemeteries all over the world outside of the United States. Uh, commemorating Memorial Day today. And what's interesting is, whereas those pictures and those faces fade in history, we can continue to contribute to Memorial Day by saying, how do we make this a better country? How do we solve the divisiveness that currently exists in our society and realize that we all sacrifice for our nation's values, which are respect for one another, loyalty uh, to something that's bigger than ourselves, the ability to see other people as coming together and, and being part of a greater whole. And I think Memorial Day has, has turned a little bit away from just remembering those who gave their ultimate sacrifice into a day where we can think as living memories of how do we make it better? How do we make it matter for our fellow citizens? What you're seeing now is pictures of of the various cemeteries overseas. That's that's Normandy there. You saw a tombstone, that's Margraten in the Netherlands where every single one of those 8,000 graves are adopted by local citizens who, who celebrate the freedom that American service members gave them in World War II. You saw a tombstone being replaced, a, a cross being replaced by a Star of David as part of something called Operation Benjamin. Uh, when Jewish soldiers went into the war in World War II, they would scratch off their uh, religious preference because if they were captured by the Nazis, they were afraid of what would happen. Well, those tombstones are now being replaced with Stars of David by a group uh, that, that understands that those Jewish soldiers should be respected as well. So these are all things that are, are part of our, our dialogue today, uh, the respect for one another, the bringing our nation forward. So... That's what I'd ask everybody to think about on this Memorial Day. Lieutenant General Mark Hartling, thank you as always for sharing this tradition with us, uh, for sharing those words with us, and of course for your service. We appreciate you today and every day. Thank you for the best of you. Thanks. And the next hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. It's off the smart for the seventh game. Now, it may have been tipped in, but the buzzer sounded. The light was on. It'll be reviewed. I don't think he got that in in time. Pat. Oh, they're saying on the floor they're counting it. The Celtics are going to win. There's a game seven back in Boston. Good morning, everyone. I mean, the ultimate buzzer, buzzer beater there when they didn't know for a moment. Did they get it in? Did they not? Is it going to count? Well, it counted. And tonight, the Boston Celtics are going to try to make the greatest comeback in NBA playoff history. So if they beat the Miami Heat tonight, the Celtics would then be the first ever team to win Game 7 after losing the first three games of the series. Also this morning, we are about to get an update from officials in Davenport, Iowa, where a search and rescue operation is underway. That's after a six-story apartment building partially collapsed. Plus, President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy reaching a deal on the debt limit. Now, though, 
They have to persuade lawmakers to pass it. We're going to speak with the White House moments from now. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. We begin in Davenport, Iowa this hour, where, as Rahel mentioned, any minute now we are expecting to hear from authorities. This is rescue teams continue to search for anyone who may be missing following a six-story apartment building's partial collapse. At least seven people we know have been rescued. That collapse happening on Sunday. Authorities, though, are warning of the building's instability this morning. CNN's Adrian Broaddus joining us live. So the damage we see in those pictures is really something which means I would imagine this is a very delicate rescue effort. Um, what more do we know about those efforts and the number of people who remain unaccounted for, Adrian? Well, Erica, good morning to you. We still do not know how many people are missing. We do know authorities were able to rescue at least seven people. And as you mentioned, we're standing by to get an update from authorities regarding the search and rescue efforts that are still underway after this. If you see on your screen, it's a partial apartment collapse in Davenport, Iowa. We did hear from the fire chief, Mark Carlstein. He says this is going to be a long lengthy process. And he says it's going to take us a while to get this taken care of. Overnight crews worked, as you mentioned, this is a delicate process. But the big concern right now is the stability of the structure. And crews are working to see if anyone is under the debris there in downtown Davenport, Iowa, Erica. So uh, we also know the city, Adrian, had ordered the building owners to make some upgrades. Do we know more about those upgrades this morning? So here's a little what we know. During that news conference where the fire chief addressed members of the media, we were told the building owners did have permits in place for, quote, repairs to some of the exterior walls. And it appears that is where the work on this apartment was taking place. But here's something that is telling. Before this partial collapse, tenants of the building voiced and expressed their concern, calling the city, quote, numerous times for things. And these repairs to the building were ordered by the city. So as you can imagine, as crews are there right now, we're taking a look at some live pictures. You see them looking, We, uh, they're looking up. You see uh, debris there. They're kind of sifting through the debris. And even as they were searching through the night, we're told some of the debris was falling. So I can't underscore enough that big concern, not only for folks who may be trapped there, but this crew that is working to find anyone who is inside the integrity of the building, the stability of this structure, Erica. Adrian brought us, appreciate the updates, and we'll continue to check in with you. Thank you. Well, the House is set to vote on the debt limit deal just about two days from now, and the race is on for President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy to try to rally enough lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to back their plan. Mr. President, what do you say to members of your own party who say you've made too many concessions in this deal? Well, fine, I didn't. I think you're going to get a majority of Republicans voting for this bill. This is a good bill for the American public. The president agreed with this bill. So I think there's going to be a lot of Democrats that go vote for it, too. 
As for the debt ceiling, the latest warning from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen estimates June 5th is when the government might not have enough money to pay all of its debt on time. That is one week from today. Our chief congressional correspondent, Manu Raju, live first on Capitol Hill. So, Manu, look, this was a significant development, but we're already hearing pushback from progressives and the conservative House Freedom Caucus. So this is nowhere close to being over. Compromise that will anger pretty much everyone and leave lawmakers in a very complicated position. They're going to have to decide whether to accept really the only viable option to avoid the nation's first ever debt default as soon as next Monday or reject it. And, then, and that's going to be the question if they can accept the concessions that were made as part of this furious round of negotiations that happened. Typically, negotiations that could take months to take place. They essentially had to do it in a matter of days because the White House had resisted any talks for several months because they wanted the speaker to simply raise the debt ceiling without any conditions attached. The speaker refused, demanded spending cuts. Ultimately, the White House bowed to that demand and cut a deal that is angering some folks on the left, but also angering some folks on the right who believe that the speaker gave in too much. As part of this deal, it would suspend the debt limit for two years up until January 2025. Conservatives wanted it much shorter to give them another chance to extract some concessions from the White House, but it also has a range of spending cuts that, that would affect domestic uh, programs that Democrats are particularly have protected and fought, sought to protect over the years, and it would impose new work requirements on social safety net programs like food stamps, expand some of the existing work requirements as well as new work requirements on the temporary assistance for needy families program, things that progressives in particular are concerned about. So the question will be whether they can afford to lose votes on the left and afford to lose votes on the right and put together a coalition to get this through the House. At the moment, the expectation is that there will be the votes to pass this in the House, given that there are support from center-left Democrats and a number of Republicans who are not a part of that far-right block of members who are willing to push this through, get this through the House as soon as Wednesday, and then it's over on to the Senate, which will have the expectation there that they could get 60 votes to overcome a GOP filibuster attempt to block it, pushing it potentially into the weekend just before that default deadline. So Congress, again, with its back against the wall, potentially taking up this very complicated agreement that the Speaker and the President reached over the weekend. Now it's time to count the votes, Rahal. Complicated is, is a good way to put it, Manu. And as you just pointed out, it still has to get through both chambers. From your POV, what's the next big hurdle here? Yeah, tomorrow will be something to watch. The House Rules Committee, which is the first process, step in this process, essentially has to uh, put together the parameters for the debate on the House floor that will happen on Wednesday. That House committee is stacked with members who oppose this bill. There are two in particular, Chip Roy of Texas, Ralph Norman of South Carolina. Both of them have been outspoken members who have... Uh, criticize this bill. Another member to watch there, Thomas Massey. If all three of those members vote against this in the committee, try to stop it from moving forward, that could essentially stop it in its tracks, assuming no Democrats break ranks to vote it, vote for this to move ahead. So that committee vote tomorrow will be so significant to watch going forward. And also that was all part of the agreement that Speaker McCarthy cut back in January to become the Speaker of the House on 15 ballots. He allowed three hard right members to be part of that very powerful committee, the question would be, will that come back to bite him tomorrow in this key moment to try to avoid a debt default? If he's able to get it through that committee, 
Then it's on to the House floor, and then we'll see what happens then. Yeah, certainly a lot at stake here. Manu Raju, thank you. Joining us now, White House Communications Director Ben LeBolt. Ben, good to see you this morning. Let's pick up where Manu just left off there. How much concern is there at the White House this morning about that House Rules Committee? Um, well, well, look, I want to take a step back first and talk about what's in the agreement, because I think most members of Congress understand how important it is to pass this. As you pointed out, on June 5th, the government will no longer be able to pay its bills and would default for the first time in history if this legislation doesn't pass. And economists have predicted that that could lead to 8 million jobs lost, retirement accounts would be hit, we could tip into a national and global recession. And so what's critical in this legislation is that we act, that Congress acts to prevent default. And that's what we heard from most members of Congress that we briefed uh, yesterday on the Democratic side of the aisle. The 100 members of, of the new Democrats, the, the center-left coalition in Congress, put out a supportive statement. Congressman Clyburn put out a supportive statement. They're just getting the bill text, so it will take some time for members to review this. But we're hopeful this is a reasonable, bipartisan compromise that members of both parties will support the agreement. So I'm not hearing an answer, though, when it comes to the House Rules Committee. Is that a major concern for the White House this morning? Uh, well, look, we'll we'll leave uh, to to the speaker uh, to win uh, support from Republicans in Congress to move this forward. Yesterday, uh, when he was on television, he said that he expected the majority of Republican members uh, in the House to support the legislation. You know, the the president uh, brought in all four congressional leaders. Uh, throughout this process and worked closely with the speaker to make sure that they all felt that they could win support from members of both parties mm -hmm. uh, to get a bipartisan vote to get this through, which is always how we've prevented default in the past. And so we did hear to your point, we heard from Speaker McCarthy. We played a little bit of that sound earlier, saying he's confident it will get through in terms of votes. The president also feeling pretty good about it. And yet we do know that there are lawmakers on both sides of the aisle who have some reservations this morning. I just want to play a moment from yesterday right here on CNN on State of the Union. Congresswoman Jayapal was asked whether the administration should be concerned. Here's how she answered. Democrats watching right now uh, at the White House, uh, your, your friend Hakeem Jeffries, others. Do they still have to worry about the progressive caucus and whether or not your caucus yes. will support? Yes, they do. OK, Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you yes, so much. Yes, they have to worry. So she was very clear there. Yes, they have to worry. You have to worry. What are those discussions this morning? What is the messaging behind the scenes as you try to allay some of those concerns? Well, there's a few pieces to it. The first I talked about, preventing default, is absolutely essential for hardworking Americans. The second is for members of the Progressive Caucus uh, who voted for all of the signature legislation of this administration over the past couple of years that has led to the creation of 12.7 million jobs uh, and the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, things like the Chips and Science Act that will allow us to build a semiconductor industry in this country, the infrastructure law, the largest investment in clean energy ever in the Inflation Reduction Act, um, those are protected and funded in this agreement. And so if you voted for those items, uh, you should vote for this as well, in addition to uh, how essential it is to prevent default that would have a catastrophic impact on the American people. You're talking about things that were voted for. When we look at, though, one of the concessions that was made here, about a quarter of the IRS funding that was passed, so $20 billion being cut out of the $80 billion that was promised to the IRS. This was put out there as a way to not only modernize the technology, right, but also to go after high-income tax cheats. And, and the reasoning behind all of this is this was going to bring in more revenue. Do these cuts jeopardize that goal?
Well, look, we don't think they jeopardize the ultimate goal. If this was the budget that the president had written on his own with a Democratic Congress, uh, it would have preserved 100% of that funding. But this is the nature of a bipartisan compromise and the nature of governing, like the president said yesterday. Uh, there was a 10-year time horizon uh, on those funds. We think the IRS will still be able to do its job in terms of modernizing, improving customer service, and going after wealthy tax cheats. And some of those funds had to be re appropriated uh, to make sure that we were protecting essential programs for hardworking Americans like education, like health care. The White House, the president had been adamant that there would be no negotiation here. Uh, when asked about it yesterday, he said, well, I didn't negotiate on the debt ceiling. When you look at the messaging here, that's a challenge for the president to overcome in terms of whether he did or did not negotiate Semantics are one thing, but as he's going out there and trying to sell things, how important is the messaging on this deal and where Democrats stand on it? Well, look, I, I think the messaging uh, is always important. And I'll remind you that the president started setting the contours of this debate really in the State of the Union address earlier this year uh, when he said, uh, it's essential that we don't cut Medicare. It's essential that we don't cut Social Security. And Republicans subsequently agreed to that. He'd been advocating for a budget since March 9th that invests in hardworking Americans, that protects the economic gains of this administration. He had an approach to deficit reduction uh, that included uh, taxing the wealthiest and asking corporations to pay their fair share. Unfortunately, Republicans wouldn't entertain revenue. Uh, as, as part of this discussion, but we think we've landed in a reasonable place that recognizes that there's a Democratic White House and a Republican House, and ultimately some bipartisan compromise is needed for the legislation uh, to pass at the end of the day. Ben LeBolt, good to have you with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Memorial Day weekend travel has already broken pandemic-era air travel records twice, and despite the large crowds, the airlines and the FAA have been able to keep up. CNN's Pete Montine live at Reagan National Airport. So, Pete, it's been good so far. I mean, do you expect that to continue? It is early. It's 8.15 Eastern. <laughs> We're through the first wave, Rahel, and it's been so good, so far so good. The second wave now is the big question. All these people coming home all at once. Think about the backdrop here against the backdrop of last Memorial Day when airlines really kicked off that summer of flight cancellations and all of these people traveling all at once. This was always going to be a huge test for the airlines. The TSA is on pace to meet its 10 million passenger screen nationwide forecast. On Friday, they screened the pandemic-era air travel record. 2.72 million people at airports nationwide. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Those numbers all bigger than the same day back in 2019 before the pandemic. The good news here is that the cancellations have been relatively low, peaking on Friday, about 200 cancellations. So we've seen about 600 cancellations between Thursday and today. Today, pretty low as well. But think back to Memorial Day back in 2022, when airlines over the same period canceled about 2,700 flights, really being celebrated by Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. He says that the cancellation rate right now is less than 1%. But the meltdowns of last year, according to travelers I've been talking to, still top of mind for them. It is absolutely in the back of my mind, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed that I get home without a hitch. I hope that when I go back on Tuesday, I won't have a problem because I have to get to work.
The FAA anticipates handling 42,000 commercial flights today. It says that there could be some hiccups today in the New York area, at Newark and LaGuardia because of high wind, also in San Francisco because of fog, although no ground stops just yet, Rahel, no major delays so far. So it could be a pretty good day when it comes to cancellations, and we may stick the landing here when it comes to a smooth start to the summer. I see what you did there, Pete Montine. I like it. Thank you. I talked to, I talked to Pete on Friday on uh, the 9 a.m. show, and he said this is a big test for the airlines, Yeah, big test for the TSA. Looks like they passed it. So that's good to hear. Yeah, All right, totally. Summer, here we go. Here we Let's go. Keep it up. Mm -hmm. All right, coming up next. Overnight, Russia launching one of its largest ever drone attacks against Ukraine. And the president of Belarus claiming that nations who enter into an alliance with Russia will be provided with nuclear weapons. Well, with the latest from the ground in Ukraine, coming up next. Plus, Turkey's President Erdogan winning re-election in a runoff that now extends his rule into a third decade. We'll take a look at the global impact just ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We have some new video to show you just into CNN. Crowds gathering in a Kyiv metro station during an air attack. Ukraine's military says its forces shot down nearly 40 air targets just today. And this comes after nearly 70 targets were shot down hours earlier in the capital city. This is being called Russia's largest drone attack yet on the capital city. CNN Sam Kiley is live in eastern Ukraine for us. So the attacks seem to be on the uptick. Is that what you were experiencing, what you're hearing from folks? <clears throat> yes, uh, certainly there is an increase in the focus of the number of attacks on Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital. This is the 16th uh, day or night this year that uh, Kyiv has come under sustained and concentrated attack. What's unusual in, in, in a, arguably an escalation this morning is the use of Iskander missiles, or what are believed to be Iskander missiles, which are very sophisticated, very uh, heavy war-headed uh, missiles produced by the Russians against Kyiv in daylight, uh, driving people underground, uh, causing children to run screaming through the streets, clearly intended to both attack civilians, but also sow fear among the civilian population. So this is an additional effort to the overnight effort, which essentially is directed at trying to get missiles through against the command and control structures inside Kyiv and absorb as much of the Ukrainian air defenses, a lot of them supplied by the international community, notably uh, Patriot, but not just that from the United States, Germany and others, uh, Netherlands, but, but other missile systems that protect Ukraine against the Russian dominance of the airs. It's a very ca careful balancing act there in terms of resources and the Russians clearly trying to get the Ukrainians to use as much of that resource and waste it on the low-tech low Shahid drones in particular in the overnight attacks. But these attacks during the day are much more sinister nature. Um, I also wanted to ask you about Russia or Belarusian president, rather, uh, Lukashenko, now claiming that he will offer nuclear weapons to nations willing to join the union state of Russia and Belarus. Uh, not clear to me that he actually has any nuclear weapons to share with anyone, but certainly an interesting statement. It's a sort of statement that he might not have made without the permission or encouragement of the Kremlin. Uh, but as you rightly point out, Belarus, Belarus does not have any nuclear weapons. So it's a bit like saying I'll give a million bucks to anybody who will be my friend. The problem is I don't have a million bucks to give away. But what it does signal 
via him is perhaps the Kremlin's uh, suggestion that it will nuclearize its sphere of influence in the face of increasing pressure, both economic and military, that it's facing uh, more directly here in Ukraine over its illegal invasion of Ukraine. It is facing being an international pariah. It is facing economic hardship as a result of international sanctions. So Russia's potentially only card to play longer term is to say we'll abandon uh, nuclear non-proliferation and start spreading nuclear weapons uh, amongst our friends. But it's certainly not in the gift of the president of Belarus. He doesn't have any nuclear weapons to give anybody. Yeah, uh, important to point out. Sam Kiley, appreciate it as always. Thank you. Turning now to Turkey, where Turkey's longtime president, Recep Erdogan, is set to remain in power after winning a high-stakes runoff election. Erdogan beat the opposition with 52% of the vote yesterday, according to election officials there. As you can see in some of this video, thousands of supporters gathered outside the presidential palace to celebrate his win. Turkey is a key NATO ally, but throughout his presidency, he has faced strong criticism for consolidating power, jailing his political rivals, and developing close ties with Russia and Iran. Erdogan and Russian President Vladimir Putin have what Erdogan has called a, quote, special relationship, telling CNN's Becky Anderson last week that the two nations, quote, need each other in every field possible. Uh, we have some just released video to share with you. Look at this. This is, I mean, just shocking video. A bus driver and a passenger in a shootout. And as you can tell there by watching the video, this happened on board a moving bus. We'll tell you what happened next. And take a look at this. This is from yesterday's Indy 500. This is going to be a big hit right here. I don't know if he's going to keep it under the turn two wall. Oh, no. Kirkwood. Kirkwood. So you see that car spin out there? It hit a tire and sends it soaring over the fence toward the crowd where it landed. And what happened to the driver? That's ahead. Welcome back. An update now on a story we've been following out of Iowa this morning. Officials say one more person has been rescued from a building that collapsed in Davenport, making eight total rescues. That person has been taken to the hospital. No confirmed deaths at this time. The city's fire chief said just moments ago that first responders are near the end of the rescue phase of the response and will soon begin the recovery phase. Stay with CNN for more updates here. A city bus driver and a passenger are recovering this morning after getting into a dramatic shootout. This happened on board a bus in Charlotte, North Carolina earlier this month. The transit system, though, just released the video. So you'll see on it here a rider pulling out a gun. Then the driver takes out his own and begins firing. So Charlotte area transit system released a statement with the video saying that this began after the passenger asked to get off the bus at an undesignated stop. Seen as Diane Gallagher joining us live this morning in Charlotte. Uh, how does it escalate to this point, though, Diane, that we end up with a shootout? Well, Erica, that was just a two-minute argument, according to the Charlotte Area Transit System, or CATS, that escalated into that shootout because that passenger wanted to get off right now. They say that the driver told him that they could only stop at an authorized location, and that's when the passenger, as you can see in the video, pulls out the gun. The driver sees that gun, pulls out his own gun, and then, according to Katz, they both fired their guns in rapid succession, although at this point it is unclear 
who shot first. Now, look, that passenger, Omari Tobias, sort of crawls down the walkway. The driver follows him. There are more shots exchanged before both men get off the bus. There are also two additional passengers on the bus at this time, though we're told that they are unharmed. Now, both Fullard and Tobias were shot. The driver was shot in the arm, the passenger in the abdomen. Uh, Tobias, the passenger, has been charged in relation to this shooting. It is unclear at this time if the driver is going to be, but he was fired from his position. Katz says that he did not follow de-escalation protocols. He never used the radio or the two silent alarms that are available to him. He was hired by a third-party operator, and they also have a protocol that means that says that you cannot have a weapon on you at the time. Now, his attorney, the driver's attorney, tells CNN that he had worked as a dedicated CATS driver for 19 years and says that he's represented several other CATS drivers in the past and says that, look, they've continuously tried to encourage the CATS system to enhance their security measures for drivers uh, to hopefully nothing like this happens again in the future, Erica. Wow, that is really something. Diane, appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And coming up, it's a wrap on Succession. Don't worry. We're going to try to make this a spoiler-free zone, especially for my benefit. We'll talk about the impact of the show with official Succession expert Kara Swisher. She joins us live from the next. are already making you nostalgic for all oh, the corporate drama that was Succession. Yeah, us too. The finale aired last night, but the alarm clock goes off a little too early for anyone on this team or myself to watch it. So if you were an early riser, chances are you probably also didn't see it. So we're going to try to make this a spoiler-free zone this morning. But you know who definitely did watch? That would be Kara Swisher, host of HBO's official Succession podcast. Okay, Kara, no spoilers, but let's just get some business out of the way. Who took over oh. Waystar Royco after okay. Logan's death? Uh, Kendall, Shiv, Rome. Who took over after his death or yes. in this finale? In this finale. Which one? Rome. Oh, it was Sh- the, the Swede. The Swede. The what? The, the Swede took over afterwards. The Swede. The Swede. Matson took over wow. afterwards. And, you know, this was part of a... Yeah, it happened. That yes. is, okay, yeah. that is uh, very so. shocking. Um, in all seriousness, what did you think of the finale? Did they, did they land the plane? Mm-hmm. I think they did a great job. I think it was, did, they didn't do any stunts. It, was, it made sense. A lot of people said it wasn't a surprise and it was obvious, but it was still an amazing ride to get there. Um, you know, these kids have been struggling this entire, uh, you know, the show is called Succession. So we're trying to figure out who's going to succeed Logan Roy, the legendary businessman. And these kids have always had trouble figuring out which one was correct. And at the same time, whether they had the skills to do so. And obviously mm. throughout the show, they kept displaying sort of a lack of ability to do what he did. And and he did, too. And I think the key line in the show was much earlier uh, before uh, he died, where he said, uh, I love you, but you're not serious people. And I think that mm-hmm. was echoed in the finale. Yeah, that was that was tough to watch nonetheless. So you unpack the series finale in a two part mm-hmm. podcast. You interview Alexander Skarsgård, mm-hmm. who plays the tech billionaire, as we just talked about, Lucas Matson, and also Jeremy Strong, who plays Kendall Roy. What can you tell us about the podcast there? Mm hmm. Well, it's interesting because they sort of unpacked their own feelings about their characters and where they got their inspiration and how they felt about it. And Jeremy Strong, who's sort of the center of this show in this particular finale, 
um, talked about uh, his, you know, the different endings that they thought about, including him possibly running out to the water. Water has always been a big metaphor for this particular character, either floating in it or maybe he was committing suicide or he was happy. And so to end it at the water was critically important, I think. And, um, you know, I think every single character on the show, down to uh, people that pay, played smaller characters, got their moment in this mm-hmm. finale. And also throughout the season, it was beautifully written. And so that was what was great about it. And you sort of have a sense of what could happen next now that now that these these people have been released of this this sort of prison sentence of being that wealthy and and having that many expectations put on them when they didn't have the ability to carry them out. And so one wonders what's going to happen next for all of them, actually. Well, one thing that's for sure is it certainly had a cultural impact. Kara, where do you think Succession falls on the list of greatest mm-hmm. HBO shows of all time? And that's a tough group to be in because you're talking about Veep, you're talking about well, The Wire, yeah. you're talking about Game of Thrones. I mean, is it top three? Mm-hmm. Where do you think it lands? Right. You know, I think it's sort of it's sort of a, a like like Sopranos. I think it's that way. I mean, it's the idea of a group of people in business, whether you know, mob being in the mob is in business, and so I think that's was was the attraction of it. It's the it's sort of a look into these lives, and yet a lot of it, even though they're wealthy people, a lot of their problems are like regular people. They suffer from the same problems despite great wealth and great power. Uh, they're still unhappy. They're still, um, and if you want to go way back, Dynasty and, 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 and Dallas, those kind of stories. And I think mm. people like to watch those. And in this case, it was so beautifully written. Uh, Jesse Armstrong, the creator and his uh, team of writers deserves and directors de- deserves enormous credit here along with the actors. And so it was a really good grouping of that um, and, and the actors who were all, they sort of made these indelible characters, uh, both humane and awful. No, nobody in that show is good, um, but they're all they're all people you want to watch and actually care about, which they're is also hard nuance. to do. Yeah. Kara, I want to very quickly show you one of uh, one of mm-hmm. our favorite moments from the show, at least mine, a boar on the floor, and then we can okay. talk about your favorite moment. Yeah. Sit on the floor. It's fun. Seriously? Yeah, it's a game. Boar on the floor. I really, I feel... Get down! Bore on the floor. Bore on the floor. Kendall, ring the troops. Bore on the floor. Bore on the floor. Get down. Greg, on the floor, Bore. I mean, just so good. Kara, any favorite moments for you on the show? Yeah. Uh, not that one. It was about cruelty. You know what I mean? Because this guy was a sadist in a lot of ways. And they all were versions of sadists and masochists with each other and w- depending on where they were in the power thing. I think that scene in the karaoke bar with the children where he was they were having a frank talk about their relationship was really uh, disturbing. I think the last, the very last image of Shiv and Tom, where he reaches out his hand after he's betrayed her, essentially, and she just places it on top but doesn't hold it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you wonder where that relationship's going. Um, you know, all, and the scene of the three kids in the in the boardroom at the end, I think, uh, arguing with each other about how they're they're just uh, I don't think I can say it, but they say they, they say they are not up to the task. And uh, and 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 Kendall Roy, played by Jeremy Strong, can't handle that idea because this is he has been told since his childhood that this is what he's supposed to do. And what do they all do now? And that's what's really Interesting. Even though they walk away with billions and these people are going to be very rich, you wonder what they're going to do now. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm still a few episodes behind, but Kara Swisher, uh, great to chat with you this morning. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry. Thanks a lot. 
Well, the Boston Celtics have an opportunity to make history in Game 7 of the NBA Conference Finals. So is the luck of the Irish on Boston's side tonight. We'll discuss. It's off the smart for the seventh game. Nope, can may have been tipped in, but the buzzer sounded. The light was on. It'll be reviewed. I don't think he got that in in time. Oh, they're saying on the floor they're counting it. The Celtics are going to win. There's a game seven back in Boston. Whew, do you believe in miracles? Well, if you're a Celtics fan, yeah, I think you do. After the Heat beat the Boston Celtics in the first three games of the best of seven series, wasn't looking so hot out there. The future was downright bleak for Boston, but then in this wildly unlikely twist, of course, the Celtics clawed their way back, getting to game six, and then with less than a second on the clock, as you just saw there, Derek White tipped in the game winner. The close call had everyone actually fooled at first. You heard it from the announcers there. Not sure that counted. You can see the final score on the screen. They called the game for the Heat before the review. Of course, though, we know what happened next. The Celtics got that shot, and now they have the chance to make the most historic comeback in NBA playoff history. If they win tonight, this will be the first time a team has ever advanced after falling behind 3-0. And in fact, before Saturday, only three teams had ever even forced a Game 7. So that all sounds great. Keep in mind, though, none of those teams, the 1951 Knicks, the 94 Nuggets, the 2003 Trailblazers, hosted their Game 7. But guess who's hosting tonight? The Celtics. Both teams say they're ready. I mean, job isn't done yet. We got a tough one in Game 7, and we got to find a way to get one more win here. I know that we will do it. We got to go on the road and, and, and win in a very, very, very tough environment. But we're capable of it, so let's get busy. Let's get busy. Joining us now, national NBA writer and Celtics reporter for the Boston Globe, Gary Washburn. Gary, great to have you here this morning. I mean, that moment, right? That true buzzer beater. Give us a sense. What was it like in that moment when there was still this question before the shot was confirmed? Yeah, it was a surreal atmosphere because uh, it was a sold out crowd at the Kaseya Center in Miami, all clad in white, all ready to celebrate uh, their trip to the NBA Finals. So there was like, like a kind of a, for moments, people thought the game was over and then the Heat won. Uh, then the, the shot was put in. Uh, there was kind of a, well, is it at the clock? Did it beat the buzzer? Was it after the buzzer? I thought personally of being there, it was after the buzzer until I saw it again. And I was like, oh my goodness, he beat the clock. And so that's when the crowd saw it on the replay at the arena. Then there was a collective silence <laughs> um, but the Celtics, the small throng of Celtic fans in the arena started cheering loudly. And then the Celtic <laughs> players kind of went crazy on the floor. And, you know, it was just a, it was mayhem. Gary, how did the Celtics turn around this series in such a remarkable fashion? Yeah, it's incredible. They looked, they looked uninterested. You know, they pretty much quit in game three. They lost by 26 points. They just didn't give a, a maximum effort. It was an embarrassing performance, one of the more embarrassing performances in recent memory uh, for a really proud organization. And so I, their mentality was, you know what, let's just try to win one game. Let's, let's go out with respect. And they were able to eke out uh, game four, and they played well. Then they brought it back to Boston, and then they played with more confidence and momentum and force, and they were able to get game five. So obviously a very difficult 
game six where they led most of the way and they started playing more like themselves and started, you know, Jason Tatum told me they started to relax because now no one expected them to, to play well. No one expected them to try to win this series. So this team seems to do well under adversity and seems to kind of botch prosperity, and that's been the case in this series. So what do you think we're looking at tonight then? Is, this, is, this, is, adver- is it going to be more adversity or, or prosperity in this case? Anyone's guess, because <laughs> I stopped trying to predict this team. I thought that they would win game three, they lost game three. I thought they would lose game four, they won game four. So I just expect a very highly competitive basketball game, both teams going for it all, a trip to the NBA Finals where they meet the Denver Nuggets. Uh, it's a, it's going to be an all-out just you know battle between two rivals, very proud organizations, and the Celtics do have a chance to make history in a city that has a, a very rich sports history. Mm. Well, we know John Berman. Of all people, oh, yes. we'll be watching one of our colleagues, uh, a huge Boston fan. Uh, Gary Washburn, thank you. Hard to say predictions in terms of who will win, but I think we can safely predict it will be a good game. It will be a great game. Berman will be staying up, definitely <laughs> watching all of it. And it's true, yeah. as Gary said, Boston is such an incredible sports town. There's going to be a lot of energy. As a tonight. Philadelphia person, I'm not going to agree to that. You but. have your own special sports energy <laughs> right, in exactly, Philadelphia, exactly. we should point out. So, yes. <laughs> you can watch Game 7 between the Celtics and the Heat tonight on TNT. Tip-off, 8.30 Eastern. A really terrifying scene at the Indianapolis 500 yesterday. Driver Felix Rosenquist hits the wall, spins out, as you're seeing here, just barely nicking fellow driver Kyle Kirkwood. Kirkwood then flips. One of his tires goes soaring over the fence toward the crowd. Now, thankfully, it did miss the stands. Landed actually in a parking lot. Remarkably, no injuries reported. Kirkwood also okay. Nashville native Joseph Newgarden came away with the checkered flag, becoming the first American to win the Indy 500 since 2016. You can see the celebration there. Getting into the stands by fans, getting mobbed by fans before, of course, the requisite Indy 500 milk bath. I'm just so thankful to be here. You have no idea. I started out as a fan in the crowd, and this place, is it's amazing, regardless of where you're sitting. It doesn't matter if you're driving the car, you're working on it, or you're out here in the crowd, you're a part of this event. It's so long to get to this point. We're here for weeks, working and grinding on this thing, just for this one moment, and that's what makes it so demoralizing when it doesn't work out. But I can tell you, it is, we're going to enjoy it tonight. Welcome back. Many Americans heading to the beach this Memorial Day as we head into the summer with the U.S. facing a national lifeguard shortage once again. New York City says it needs some 1,400 lifeguards. The American Lifeguard Association said hundreds of thousands of pools could be affected because of the shortages. CNN's Polo Sandoval is joining us now live from New York's Rockaway Beach. So, Polo, those numbers, the figures, pretty drastic. Is there a solution or is it too late at this point for the summer? Well, what you're seeing right now, Erica, is basically seeing some of those municipalities trying to boost up their recruitment efforts, offering more benefits, upping the salary here in New York, for example, going from about 16 bucks an hour to 21. But still, they are certainly swimming against the current when it comes to actually boosting those numbers. I checked on the parks and recreation site this morning, and they currently don't have any availability for any certification classes uh, for this particular season, uh, not until 2024. So that gives you an idea of sort of what municipalities like New York, 
York, all the way across the country are actually uh, facing. But in terms of the today, it is really just a beautiful Memorial Day morning. Most of the folks that you'll see here uh, at this particular beach are folks that are surfing way off the coast there. A little later, of course, that could potentially change as you begin to see some of those families make their way out here. The big recommendation that we heard from the American Lifeguard Association uh, earlier this morning is, look, to do your research, if you go to those beaches that typically have a lifeguard, make sure that they are going to continue to have that. If not, perhaps uh, shift your strategy and go to another location. And then the other recommendation, the two other recommendations that we heard, Rahel uh, and, and uh, Erica, is designate a water watcher, right? If you're going to be out there with your family, make sure that somebody's always keeping their eye out on the water. And last but not least, folks, learn to swim. Again, this coming from the experts this morning as folks get out to celebrate the Memorial Day today. And a lot to keep in mind, but Polo also, there have been four great white sharks spotted in the waters off New York and New Jersey this past week. We don't have a lot of time, but that's also something that people have to keep in mind. Absolutely. We learned about that, about about th- uh, four sightings way off the coast, just north of where we are right now. Keep in mind, experts have said that, that what we see is these, these sort of great shark migratory patterns that sip, usually shift them north uh, for, you know, some of those bound, the bounty of, uh, of the feeding grounds. And then they head back south for the winter. So, again, certainly normal, but it is feeling some concerns for folks way off the coast uh, of New Jersey and New York. Back to you. That's why I stay on the coast. <laughs> Just dip my feet in. There you go. Thank you, Polo. Polo, appreciate it. Thanks to all of you for joining us this morning. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.